glad to be with you guys this morning. It is great to see uh, some of you that I haven't seen in a while. Miss you guys, but really excited about what God's doing here, and uh, just glad that you're doing it. Glad to see what God is doing in and among our whole church, and uh, especially glad to see what has happening right here. My daughters went to school here, so it's kind of a different setting for me to be here for worship, and uh, it's a great setting. Um, if you don't know me, because I know some of you have come in since then, uh, since, since La Habra has launched and you've never met me, uh, I'm the guy that you probably, if you're honest, you, you take the folder every week and you draw a little mustache and glasses on. That's, that's me. Um, and you're probably sitting there wondering two things. Who is this guy, which I just told you, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit more. And what's this going to be like? So the who is this guy, other than the guy that you draw the glasses on, um, I'm a guy that prays for you all the time. I have prayed for what God's doing here since before it began, and it's just been a joy to continue doing that. I read the prayer requests that come through every week, and I pray through those, and I pray for what happens here. And so it's, whether we've met yet or not, it's a privilege for me to be here with you. And as to how it's going to go right now, um, I'm mindful of a story that Huck Finn, you know, the, the book by Tom Sawyer, he told a, a friend about his preacher back home, Mr. Phelps, and he said, Mr. Phelps never charged nothing for his preaching, and it was worth it, too. <laughs> so um, I promise, by God's grace, we'll hit at least that level. And realistically, everything above that is just a gift from God anyway, because what we really want to do is we want to hear from God. We want him to speak into our lives. So if you have a Bible, would you open to Psalm 138? I mean, it's not Psalm 138. You could do that, but you wouldn't be where I am. Psalm 73. I have no idea why Psalm 138 came to mind. Um, Psalm 73 is where we're going to be, and uh, we're continuing our series on a marvelous God. This, this morning, we want to look at the fact that God, even though he's this vast, infinite creator of everything that we see and things that we don't see, quarks and quasars and stuff that is really exotic and strange, and he's thought of all these things, and he's created everything, and he's in immensely powerful beyond our reckoning, and he's completely other from anything we've experienced. All of those transcendent truths about our marvelous God, what is also true is that he's very personal. He is present in our lives at every moment, and he is pursuing us in relationship, and that's really what Psalm 73 is all about, but it is a very realistic picture of that because as followers of Christ, or in the psalmist's case, is just a follower of God, we sometimes lose sight of that. We sometimes feel distant from God. Sometimes life has a way of driving a wedge between us and our Lord, and we may actually even find ourselves in circumstances that are just really hard to see the hand of God or experience his presence in our lives. Um, a woman named Aisha who lives in a Muslim country has an experience that is perhaps a little more extreme, but is like ours in many ways. She grew up in this Muslim country and uh, it is a very restrictive setting. And when she came to faith as an adult, that created problems, actually. Sometimes coming to faith in Christ, we expect it to solve problems, and it does in so many ways, but it doesn't make life just go smoothly. And in her case, it got really hard. She turned her life over to Jesus, and it seemed like he just took her life and turned it upside down. Because right after she accepted Christ, her husband died, and she was left a widow at the age of 24 with four children in a culture where it was hard for her to even make a living. 
And she was wondering who was going to provide. And what's more, it's hostile. Both her family and her country were hostile to her new faith. And so she didn't know where she was going to get the support and strength she needed emotionally and spiritually as well. And she stayed with Christ. She followed, she prayed, and she stood up for him and shared her faith. And that led her to be arrested, threatened, and imprisoned in what can only be described as a dungeon, even though they don't have dungeons. Um, In the police headquarters, they have an unfinished cellar down below the floor of the first floor, accessed through a trap door, and they just dropped her down the hole into the dirt with the spiders and the bugs and the rats, pitch black. And she was utterly terrified. And in that moment of darkness, in that moment of aloneness, the question that was really in her heart is, where's God? Where is God in all of this? I need help. And she was literally in the process of opening her mouth to cry out, to complain, to moan, and something happened. And in that moment, God worked in her heart. And as she opened her mouth and gave utterance, literally a song of praise formed on her lips, and that's what came out of her mouth, surprising her, but strengthening her at the same time. Because in that moment, she was just completely flooded with this sense of God's presence in her and around her. And she started singing louder and more confidently. And then things above where she could hear everyone walking on the floor above her head, office by office quieted down as they started to listen. And after a while, there was this shaft of light that shot down into the pitch black and the police chief reached down and pulled her up and he said, why aren't you afraid? What's going on? Before she could answer, he said, you're free to go. I'll take you home myself. But in three days, I'm going to come and get you because I want you to come to my house. My wife, my daughters, all of the women in my family are afraid of everything. And I want you to come and tell them why you're not afraid. And I want you to teach them your song. Psalm 73 is a similar experience in the life of Asaph, where he is in a dark place. He's in a difficult spot where he's wondering, where is God? And as he is processing this in his heart, he doesn't open his mouth in complaint, but he's sure wrestling in his heart. And then God works and turns his words to praise. My prayer for us this morning is that we would experience God and his presence in such a way that wherever we are, I know some of you are probably in a pretty dark place. Some of you are probably feeling pretty alone. Um, Maybe that God's not there, or at least that he's pretty anemic in his response to you. Maybe you're feeling like you got ripped off. Asaph feels like God's ripped him off. And yet, in that dark place, God shines a light and says, I'm here. I'm here. And if you're in that dark place, in that hard place, that would be my prayer for you. And if you're not, so much the easier, so much the better for us to encounter God. So if you want to just follow along, we're going to read Psalm 73. And we're going to mostly look at the last few verses. This is, the first part is all Asaph's wrestlings, and he gets to the answer in verse 23. So we're going to really focus on the answer, but we're going to start with his wrestlings and see what the answer is 
to those. And actually, in a sense, we're going to work our way backwards because God's, part of his conclusion is God is always with me. Always, always, always. So when I don't experience that, what happened? And that's what the first 22 verses are about. That's that struggle. And then we'll get to the answer. So if you just want to follow along, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his summary. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. They strut their tongues through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Because these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Here's where Asaph feels ripped off by God. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He has the presence of mind at least not to go spreading his struggle. And he tries to figure it out. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Made my head hurt trying to figure this out. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." If you like to take notes, there's two simple things that he uncovers in his answer to his struggle. Two simple things about God that become his anchor points. And the first one is God, well, we'll put it in our terms. If I belong to God, right, if I'm his, God sticks with me. God sticks with me. The second thing is if I belong to God, God sustains me. Pretty simple But when you flesh it out a little bit more like Asaph does, it's also pretty powerful because really if you take verses 1 through 23, the first part, that's where he says, ever, you're always with me, right? Verses 1 through 22 could literally be read this way. God sticks with me even when I'm a jerk because that's what Asaph has just been towards God. 
In fact, that's part of his point. It's like, I was like a stupid beast in your presence. That's kind of hard for us to get. We picture animals and they're like cute little kittens and puppies or, you know, some of you are into reptiles, I know, and it's turtles and snakes, but we're, they're pets, right? You know, we, had a, we have a bird, we had a cat, we had a dog, we've had fish, and they're all pets. We don't think of them as stupid, well, most of the family doesn't think of them as stupid beasts anyway. And even my neighbor, he has, he has, um, he has livestock, I guess you could say. He's got hens, laying hens, right? In fact, the staff comes over to my house for staff meetings, and they think I live next to a pterodactyl farm. <laughs> They're just nasty-sounding things. But each of these hens has a name and has been adopted into the family. They're not just livestock. They're pets. The other day, the, my, one of my daughters was babysitting, and, and one of the hens got injured, and its comb was coming off, and the kids were distraught, and parents weren't around. And, and so we went over to help them deal with the trauma of their livestock being injured. It's really hard for us to understand when Asaph says, I was like a stupid beast in your presence. There's nothing complimentary in that. He's saying, I was a complete jerk to you, God. I completely didn't get it. I, I was actually in your presence complaining to you and about you, asking where you were. I'm right in front of you the whole time, and I'm saying, God, where are you in this? How ridiculous. How ridiculous is that? And, and what Asaph winds up doing is, is he, he's, he's literally in this, this isolated desert of self-pity. He has fallen into a trap that a lot of us can fall into. In fact, all of us, I think, fall into this at one time or another. I suspect Asaph would say, we all pass through this desert of self-pity. Just don't settle down there. We get into these patterns where we have this demandingness towards God. And then when he doesn't come through, we get hung up on that. And then pretty soon we spiral inward and it becomes a greater and greater and greater struggle, that's where we see Asaph, right? He's looking around him, and he sees all these people that are prospering. Everyone's got all this money, got all this fortune, got all this status. They seem to be healthy and wealthy and wise, and they're just living for themselves, and they seem to have no trouble. God, don't you see that? And I look at my life. I mean, all in vain, I've kept myself. You've ripped me off, God. I mean, I'm working hard to live for you, and I'm just being rebuked and beaten on every day. And, and Asaph has fallen into a trap that has cut him off from God. He's always in God's presence, but he doesn't sense that presence because he's, he's in this self-referential circle of, of pity and, and of frustration and of, of pain that at least sometimes, I'm not suggesting this is true for all pain and struggle and suffering. Please don't hear that at all. But sometimes, I would suspect even often, that's something we bring on ourselves because we forget. I desire many things. I deserve few things. Just soak in that for a minute. Let that sink in. That's true for any of us. I desire many things, but I deserve few things. And when I start thinking I deserve many things, I deserve fill in the blank. God, you owe me X. 
X is what puts my feet on a slippery path that Asaph is coming off of. He's saying, God was there the whole time. I missed him because I got onto that wrong path. God does not promise anywhere that my journey will continually be pleasant. He promises instead that he will continually be present. Which means, in whatever hard place, that's, he's present there too. In um, Asaph's life, what happens is he, he falls into the trap that sometimes happens. Hard things come. There's no way around heartache. Hard things are hard. Nobody who's got any sense to them says, buck up, get over it, quit whining. Well, maybe the quit whining part. It's hard. It hurts. But Asaph loses his footing because he begins to look at God wrongly and he begins to question one of two things or perhaps both. And In Asaph's case, he questions both and it happens with us. He questions that God knows what's going on. God, you don't get it. You don't see it. You're not really here. Where are you? And he questions God's goodness. Right? When I have something that I want from God and he's not giving it to me or he's giving me something that I don't want, those are two temptations. God, you don't get it. You're not, you're, where are you? What are you thinking? As if somehow I'm smarter than God. Or... God's just not good. If God is who he says he is, and he knows more than me, and he has said, I am for you, and he said, I will work everything out, then whatever's coming in my life, though the particulars may be really painful, difficult, even ugly, God has a purpose, he's working through it, that is good. Asaph loses sight of that. That's one of the key ways that we lose sight of God. I think in my own experience, perhaps the key way. And so he has to have this moment where he comes back and he says, you know, demanding this isn't helpful here. I I was with somebody the other day who's in a really difficult spot and needs a lot of help. I was there to help. There were a bunch of other people around to help. And it 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 was annoying, it was frustrating, and it was comical because they were so strident and, and so clamoring for, I need this and I need that and here's what's going on. And they, they wouldn't even slow down or stop or take a breath. The people around them were actually doing exactly what they were calling for, but they couldn't even see it because they were so hung up in their demand for the No, patience, got to fix it now. I'm hurting. This is hard. You don't, you don't understand or you don't really care. You're not good. That was the same pattern. I I drove away from there thinking, how often do I do that with God? And what does that do to my relationship with God and my experience of him? Asaph is there, but then he realizes, verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Now, just stop for a second and look at that first word. It seems innocuous enough. I think it is one of the greatest words in our vocabulary. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. What he's saying is, everything's a mess. Nevertheless, there's hope. You know, I may have completely messed this up, but 
That's not the end of the story. I got off track, God. I lost track of you. I forgot. I got sideways. I got turned around. Nevertheless, you're actually here. You're actually here. You're right here with me. You were here with me the whole time. You never left me. Some of us need a nevertheless moment. Maybe this morning, that's one of the things I pray is that we'll have a nevertheless moment where I can bring whatever's going on in my life and say, nevertheless, God, you're here and there's hope. And I just ask you to meet me in, in this moment. So that's what he does. And he comes to this conclusion. God's always with me, continually with me. Right? Verse 23. But I want to point out something to you that's really important about this dynamic. Because the overarching truth is God sticks with me whether I'm a jerk or a nice guy. Asaph's completely mistreated God, completely misrepresented God. Thankfully, he didn't go blabbing it about. But he's really gotten harsh in his heart towards God. And he comes to this nevertheless moment and realizes God never left him. God was always there. But he says something in how he tells us this story that's really critical. Look in verse 22. That last statement, I was like a beast toward you. Those two words, toward you. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Those two words, with you. And then down the last phrase of verse 25, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Toward you, with you, besides you. Translated differently because of the context, rightfully so. But what we miss is in Hebrew, they're the same phrase, verbatim. And what that tells us is, Asaph has understood, my my relationship with you as far as its actual existence never changed. My experience changed based on my heart. There was this time that I was all wrapped up in all these unprofitable things. And I was like a beast towards you. I was in your presence, but it didn't matter because I was as blind as could be. But then now you've turned on the light and now I am with you ever. And really, I understand, verse 25, that what I most need is you. I think that's really significant. If, if I'm having trouble connecting with God and my filter, my disconnect is, is anywhere in the territory Asaph's is, a fundamental issue I just have to deal with is it's, it's my heart that's the problem, not God's action. We are in close relationship. If I'm not sensing that, guess who moved? So Asaph comes to this encouraging point. God sticks with me, period. And, and there's that nevertheless moment where it all turns for him, and that's, that's a really great place to be. The second thing he does is he begins to unpack that as he says, God sustains me. God sustains me. And if you read what he says, he sustains me every day, every way, even if I faint, even if I die. Right? He wants to paint the borders. And he says, actually, there are no borders. The paint just goes on forever because God is with me sustaining me all the time, everywhere, any circumstance, regardless of whether I'm strong in this moment or not. In fact, even beyond my death, right? Read that again. Verse 23, the next phrase, you hold my right hand. You hold my right hand. 
That's a powerful picture that we need to slow down for just a minute. If, if one was to say, God is at my right hand, that would be picturing God as my protector and my provider. I am overshadowed by an invincible ally who's taking care of everything. He's just been struggling. How come this happens for them and this happens for them and this happens and it's not happening for me? And now he says, whoa, wait a minute. I lost some perspective there. God is taking me by my right hand. If I'm saying that and the idea of God is at my right hand, that's the picture. If I take that with God takes me by the right hand, that's a picture of him honoring me and blessing me. And I think he says God's holding my right hand to give us kind of a mashup of those two images. He's saying this is the whole package, this whole picture. Because I am God's, he honors me, he blesses me, he protects me, he provides for me. That's what he's doing. And then beyond that, if you follow down a little further in the verse, it says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. This is where God's relationship is different from everyone else's, right? As a father and a husband, I'm supposed to, in many ways, be at their right hand and take them by the right hand. I'm supposed to honor my wife and my daughters. I'm supposed to protect them. I'm supposed to provide for them. You know, my daughters are at young adulthood where parenting has really shifted, but there's an awful lot of counsel that goes on. I'm learning everything from them. They're always asking me questions because they want to understand things. I can do that, at least in part, but the work of the relationship with God stands alone is, and afterward you receive me to glory. Asaph says, you, you have everything that I need. In fact, as he begins to meditate on that, he begins to just treasure God. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. If you have some time later today, read Psalm 16. It goes really well with this passage. And it just talks about what treasure we have in God. And then flip over to Romans 8, starting in verse 31, where it says, if he gave us his son, he's never going to withhold anything, right? Who's against us if God is for us? Nothing can separate us from his love. Those would be two good passages to spend some time meditating on if you're feeling a little dry in your relationship to just understand what a treasure it is to have this relationship with God where he'll never leave you even if you lose sight of him for a moment he will never leave you my heart and flesh may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever God sticks with me and he sustains me that's what Asaph reconnects with. Every single one of us as followers of Christ, at least at one point or another, got that. We've experienced that. We know that. We don't just understand it cognitively. It has been our experience. It's true, and it's true in our lives. And sometimes along the way, that gets lost. Asaph said it got lost for me. I reconnected with that truth, and that's been huge for me. God never leaves me. He's always there. He's pursuing relationship. He's watching out for me. He's blessing me. He's encouraging me. He's supporting me. He's protecting me. He is my everything. He carries me all the way through life and beyond. So how 
do we respond to this psalm so that we can experience that ourselves if that's the struggle we have right now? He tells us that. First, verse 27, the first response, look at what it says in verse 27. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Right? His, his, his worry as he opened the psalm was that uh, you know, people got away with stuff and you didn't have to follow God because you know, you'd do better without him. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Um, God will judge. So let me just stop for a second and ask a question for you. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who actually falls into verse 27. You don't have an intimate connection with God because you don't really have any connection with God other than a generic one. He's creator. He made you. Okay. There's a staggering truth that is woven throughout the scriptures that your God loves you and is pursuing you to have a relationship. But you and I were born in hostility to God. And hostility is on our side. There's righteous judgment on God's side, but he's not hostile. He's loving. The hostility is on my side because I seek to overthrow him and rule my own little world. That's where my heart is oriented, and that puts me in verse 27. And the great irony of this whole reality is that what, what Asaph has told us is that God is seeking us, really. God is pursuing us, which means God knows me in my complete lack, and he wants me anyway. Ironically, I don't have a clue about God's great abundance, and I reject him. And verse 27 is not a verse of hope if we stay there. But see, the the New Testament story of Jesus is the answer to verse 27. It's God sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved. He came to his own, John 1.11, and they didn't receive him. But whoever did receive him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. So if you find yourself disconnected from God because there's not really any basis, switch sides. That's the response. Switch sides. God allows do-overs of the heart. And you can walk daily with your creator. But the hostility has to go, and he will remove it if, if you let him. And I know there'd be people here who'd love to talk to you about that. I know for a lot of you, you have truly experienced this, and um, you are saying, I, yeah, I, I'm really intimate with God right now, or maybe not. Maybe it's a dry time. Maybe I'm in one of those dark places. So let's look at what Asaph says for us. And if you want to look, basically he says do two things. Set your focus on the God who is already there. Set your focus on the God who is already there, and he does it in two ways. First, verse 17, reset. Got to hit reset. As he's in the middle of the struggle, read verse 17 with me again, will you? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. We get off base 
We get wrapped up in ourselves. And when things get hard, it's harder not to. Understandable, but dangerous. One of the things God has given us is the gift of worship, where I can choose to pursue him. And one of the great lies that we have to overcome is we have, many of us somehow, gotten the very narcissistic view of worship where it says it's only authentic if I feel it. Whether I feel it or not has exactly zero to do with whether worship is authentic or not. Worship is authentic if it is a real pursuit of God. And I have that choice. Asaph says, this was all confusing to me. In fact, it made my head hurt, and I was really struggling, and then I hit reset. I went into the temple of God, and then I understood. There was this moment of hitting the reset button where he was able to come back around and see things rightly. Look at how his perspective changes from the beginning of the psalm to the end. Look at verse 5. Here's what he thinks of the unrighteous. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then he goes into the temple. He hits reset, sees things rightly. And then in look at verse 7, 27. Those who are far from you shall perish. I was wrong. I was seeing it wrong and that was driving me crazy. But now I see it rightly and that's helping me. Or look at verse 18. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I was wrong, but now I see it rightly. Look over at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It was, it's been a waste. It's of no value. Look at verse 25, 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is my strength, my portion. I'm not missing out. I hit reset, and suddenly things become more clear. So that would be a thing for us to do. Periodically, regularly, it's an opportunity. Whether we gather together or whether it's a private time, we just say, God, I need to hit reset because I want to set my heart on you, the God who is already there, so that I can walk with you. And he's given us that gift. The second part of this setting our hearts on God is a mindset. That's the conclusion of the psalm in verse 28. Think about this. It is good for me to be near God. For me, it's good for me to be near God. Now, what has he just said? I'm always near God. It doesn't matter whether I pay attention to it or not. I'm being a jerk to God. I'm, I'm standing in his presence complaining that he's not there. And in verse 28, he concludes by saying, it's good for me to be near God. What he's doing is he's saying, all right, I'm appropriating that reality. I'm going to live my life in worship. I'm going to live my life laying hold of this reality. I'm not going to let go of it. And if I'm in a place where it's dark and it's hard and I'm having the emotional disconnect and the struggle, I'm not going to give up. There's a really sad news story a few years ago about a, an Italian man, Ettore, whose wife had a stroke and went into a coma. This is in 2004, October, September 2004. And he, went, he sat by her bed every day in the hospital until mid-January of 2005, he couldn't take it, home, take it anymore, and he went home, and he sealed up his garage, and he turned on the car, and he killed himself. Twelve hours later, she woke up. It's hard when we hurt.
But there's still the need to say, hang on, Ettori, don't give up. I don't have an answer other than God will meet you. If I hang on just barely, I, 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 I still hang on. If I make it just barely, I just made it, I, I, I still made it. God didn't say, you're going to clear the bar by a long way. He just says, I'll, I'll, I'll get you there. And for whatever reason, he may have me in a hard place. Don't give up. Practice the presence of God is really what he's calling us to do here. He says, um, it's good for me. It's good to be near God. I have made God my refuge. He's been my refuge, but I'm appropriating that. I'm, I'm saying that's what I want. I'm pursuing that. Dimitri was a Christian under the Soviet Union and um, wound up in prison for 17 years. He was in prison in a massive cell block, just an open plan, just cell, 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 cell down this massive hallway corridor. And um, there were 1,500 criminals plus him. He was the only believer in there. And um, he said he was able to keep his faith intact in many ways, much like what Asaph is calling us to. He had two disciplines that kept him focused. He had a reset every morning because every morning he would get up and he would stand at attention by his bed, face east, raise his arms as high as he could and sing a heart song to God. He's choosing worship. And he did that every single day, regardless of the response, which was always unpleasant from the fellow prisoners. None of them agreed. They yelled at him, they cursed at him, they hit their tin cups on the bars, just like in the movies. They even took human waste and flung it at him. I mean, they treated him miserably, but he was there, and he hit reset every morning with God and said, I'm going to worship you today. And then he tried to practice God's presence, and one of the ways he did that was whenever he would find a piece of paper, he would take it back to his cell, the tiniest little scrap, and he would just write down everything that he remembered. He would take that moment in devotion to God, and he would write down his, his, his scriptures, he would write down truths, he would write down songs, he would write down prayers. It would be this moment with God that God had given him by providing this piece of paper. And he would always get in trouble, because he would put that up on a pillar that was dripping water so he could stick it there and the guards would find it and they'd beat him and threaten him and one day he said I found a piece of paper a whole sheet of paper in the yard of the prison and God had left a pencil next to it for me see the I'm appropriating that God's with me God left the pencil right there so I took it back I filled it up both sides I knew it was going to cause trouble I slapped it on the pillar and I stood back and I worshipped and sure enough the guards found it and that was it we're going to kill you right now. And they're dragging him down the long corridor to the courtyard where they're going to execute him. And the most extraordinary moment happened. Just before they take him out the door, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds, raised their hands to the full height that they could, and they started singing his heart song. They had listened and they had heard. And it terrified the guards. The guard said, who are you? And with as much confidence as he could say, he said, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Asaph concludes, it's good to be with God. And it's good, ultimately, to take refuge in him, and ultimately, I get to tell his works, too. 
we have a chance to push reset. In fact, we're going to do that right now. If you want to reset, wherever you are in your relationship, starts with a choice to worship. And I would just encourage you, take this moment and ask God to connect. It may not be easy. It may not happen like that. It may not even happen in this moment. Don't give up, Ettore. God's there. And it might happen right now.